Bonjour, hello, and welcome to Close Up on Canada, the podcast from the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. I'm your host, Daniel Bill. This season, we are talking about how Canada is facing the future in an age of global uncertainty. We are happy to be joined today by Noelani Arista, Associate Professor of History and Classical Studies and the incoming Director of Indigenous Studies at McGill University. Her research focuses on 19th century American history, Hawaiian history and literature, Indigenous uh, epistemology and translation, and colonial and indigenous history and historiography. Aloha Noi, and thank you for joining us today. There's been a lot of talk here in Canada about the revival of indigenous cultures and languages, but it will be interesting to start our conversation today with some international context on the topic of international revival of indigenous languages. You are coming to Canada from Hawaii, where you have worked in uh, this field of research for many years. Where do we begin telling the story of indigenous languages in our world today? Well, I want to start by saying aloha mai kakou, noi la nearest ko o inoa, no honolulu mai yo. Um, aloha i napo e apau mai ka la puka iha e ha e ai ka mole ol olu ole hua. Um, how olive e ku nei i ka aina o napo e ku puna. Um, o ia aina o o kapo e kanaka maoli o ia aina. I think the place we start with indigenous languages is with the people and their connection to land. At the time when I was learning my own language, when I was in college getting my master's degree, that was the only place I could probably learn language at my age, was at the university. And so, um, you know, Hawaiian language revitalization, I wanted to start with my own territory. Um, Hawaiian language revitalization began with the Hawaiian Renaissance in the 1970s. And by 1978, Hawaiian became an official language of the state of Hawaii. And when the people and when the families at the time banded together with native speakers, who um, some of them were elders and some of them were just, you know, native speakers who were in their like 20s and 30s. Um, When they banded together and they they began their own immersion program, sort of patterned after um, Maori immersion or the Kohangareo, you know, that began in the 1970s and they had to fight the state to do that, to open the doors for immersion schools and elementary. And now in 2021, we have a quarter of uh, instruction from pre-K through PhD. And Hawaiian language has become a a leader in language revitalization globally, um, so much so that people come from, you know, all over the world who want to study how to how to te- how to do indigenous language reclamation in their own territory. They come to Hilo, Hawaii. In fact, the first Mohawk um, linguist that I have ever met was at Hilo, and he was in that program. And the base requirement for that program is that you must learn two years of Hawaiian language. So where we begin with Hawaiian language or where we begin with indigenous language is always in the rooted relationship between people and aina. That's for us, our land. In my own travels, I have been to New Zealand and I've worked on indigenous protocol and artificial intelligence projects with people from 
Indigenous territories in Australia, New Zealand, Montreal, people from Cree, Northern Cheyenne. So we did uh, Indigenous AI projects, prototyping projects in an intertribal group where everyone is using the technology to sort of address uh, issues in their own language. Also, when I was getting my PhD, I moved to Boston. I, I, I went to um, Massachusetts to get my PhD, and there I connected with uh, Wampanoag people. And they were just at the beginning of their discussions of taking you know, language pro- programs that were directly directed at their tribe, and they were trying to think about how would they build their own immersion schools. So I arranged a flight to Hawaii for people from their community and also Pequot, and they came to visit our immersion schools. And I took them to places at home where families were teaching Hawaiian in the home, to preschools, to high schools, and also to the college level. And now they have their own immersion school program that has begun. So what's interesting is that Indigenous language revitalization happens, I think, most people imagine that it happens between an indigenous people and the state, but really there's a lot of intertribal, inter, you know, indigenous group collaboration that ha- happens to spur on and sort of inspire and, you know, move people forward. We're moving forward together. And so, I mean, I think that's one of the things that most people don't realize about indigenous language and indigenous language revitalization. So there's something really grassroots uh, about it. I mean, when I hear the term grassroots, I'm trying to translate it into Hawaiian to understand, like, how will we say that in our own community when I was learning Hawaiian? And, you know, my grandmother was a native speaker, but she was raised at a time when the territorial government had essentially forbidden Hawaiian from become, being a language of instruction in the schools anymore in the, you know, 19-teens. And so she and her 10 siblings, they spoke Hawaiian at home, but they didn't it was not encouraged in society. It was repressed. And so none of my mother or her 10 siblings spoke Hawaiian. So actually Hawaiian language would have been unbroken in my own family genealogy, if not for the state. And I had to go back to the state university to learn my language. So what is grassroots? Like I'm trying to figure out at the time I was learning, we didn't use the word revitalization, right? We were learning Of course, I was learning in university classes that had, you know, we had Hawaiian one through four. But when I had exhausted all of the coursework at the university, I then went out and found native speakers who were running their own research projects because they were also professors at community college and whatnot. And these are elders in my community and experts. And I work for them. And so I think that there's this romanticized conceptualization that is not in the Native community, and well, sometimes it is in the Native community, it's romanticized conceptualization of what grassroots look like or what community looks like. In Hawaii, we are not a sovereign territory. We are not recognized by the American government as a sovereign tribe, as a Native tribe, um, because Hawaii's history is quite particular. We were a kingdom that was overthrown in 1893, right? That doesn't quite fit into the historical sort of um, imagination of what a what a Native American tribe might look like in the continental United States. Because of that, we do not have uh, reserves. We have things called Hawaiian homesteads, but that's not the same thing. It, it doesn't encompass or incorporate the capacity to house all Hawaiians 
you know, in these places across an archipelago. So how do we organize ourselves as modern 21st century Hawaiians when half of our community is actually diasporic? There are about um, 520 or 540,000 Hawaiians in the world. Half of us live at home, half of us live out there in the world, right? And yet we're, we have up and running Hawaiian language teaching programs over Zoom, <laughs> you know, over, we have a Duolingo app now, we have all kinds of different avenues to bring together or knit together that social fabric that sort of defies the conceptual of people on a reservation or a grassroots community that is located in one geographic locale. After all, the entire archipelago is Hawaiian land, Hawaiian territory. You obviously have a very special connection to Hawaiian language and culture, and now you have decided to make a big move and join us here in Canada at McGill. You mentioned earlier that uh, Indigenous peoples have gone to Hawaii to learn about language revitalization. So how do you see yourself playing a role here in Canada? It's interesting because, because Hawaii is a place that is a hub, like a global hub. You know, and I want to kind of reach backwards to talk about Hawaiian language as a global language, right? Like we have hula hello or hula schools all across Europe. It's huge in Mexico and Japan. It's, it's very huge so that we have teachers and students regularly traveling to Japan. And I think there's even a Japanese Hawaiian dictionary. Okay. There's not even a Hawaiian to Hawaiian language dictionary yet, but there's a Japanese to Hawaiian language dictionary. So when we circulate ourselves through the world, we understand how we want people to act in our home place. So above all, I understand that that is not my home, that that is someone else's aina or someone else's territory. And I have to act accordingly and be respectful and know sort of where I belong in social relations and take my cues from the people of that place. And so I was lucky enough to work on video gaming workshops um, with Abtech, Aboriginal um, Territories in Cyberspace, uh, that is uh, at Concordia University with um, Jason Lewis, who is also Hawaiian, Cherokee, and Samoan. And I made connections through those projects with Mohawk elders and knowledge keepers. And I've kept up those connections. So when I I go there, I have to be cognizant that I have been invited there and I act as a guest. And I'm really there also, not only to like forward the interests of language revitalization, but also to see how I can assist using my expertise in research and archives and in indigenous languages, in the application of digital, sort of the, the transmediation of language and history of their mo'olelo into digital mediums to reach communities and young people in ways that are very modern. So sort of trying to figure out how my set of skills can intervene and assist and support the ongoing efforts of a native language revitalization projects. And in some of the uh, talks that I've been given this summer, you know, I've met French teams who are also using the same kind of technologies in French language um, in historical archives. And I'm interested in sort of, you know, sort of learning from and supporting 
all of these efforts because I think everything, everyone coming has something to contribute and, and I can learn from that. Thank you. And we are really, uh, we are really blessed to have you now part of the team at McGill. And so we welcome you. As you said, this is an increasingly global project and there are many different nations and peoples involved in it. And of course, each region will have its own specific challenges. But when it comes to maintaining, preserving, and reviving indigenous languages, what are the main challenges that we have to address today? I think some of the main challenges that we have to address is facing with sort of courage, the kind of collapse that we're seeing nearly everywhere in communities, like post-pandemic. We do not have enough resources to assist professors or students or elders in getting their knowledge systems preserved in forms that will weather the next stage of wherever society and civilization is going to go. So I hear this from professors. They're really tired. The teachers in the schools are tired. We can't train teachers fast enough to keep up with the desire for experts to give their knowledge to the next generation, which is why I think interpolating digital assists, like my colleagues in Tehiku, they crowdsourced spoken Maori and they created an algorithm so that the spoken Maori, when it's heard, can be machine typed simultaneous to the speech, right? And you can't imagine the other thing that can be reverse engineered and we can take text and make it audible. So to take pressure off physical bodies and teachers, we can use technology to assist in um, the classroom, to teach students, to preserve data. And there are projects all across Canada um, in digitization, a uh, Jerry Lawson's group over at um, UBC, you know, he and his teams assist, go into communities and take their data, whatever format it's in, cassette tapes, you know, audio, you know, reels, really old ancient things. And they move it, move the, move the pin on that so that it's, it's, you know, it's up to date digitally and can be preserved in mediums that will weather, you know, this era of transformation and change. So I think one of the challenges that we face as Native people is that people People have a tendency to think of us as people that belong to the past. And, you know, we, we, we give all our knowledge orally, you know, and it's like one elder, you know, master apprentice kind of thing. And that's just not true anymore. There are a myriad number of ways that people can teach. We just need to be able to render the aid and like go to communities and help them figure out, well, what stage are they at and what kind of assists do they need and where can experts from universities where people are kind of really wary of public education and educators, right? Uh, we can only look to see what's happening in Canada now where people will have distrust of any kind of formalized intervention by Canadian school system people in communities. And that that's also true in my community, right? Um, so some of the challenges that we face are interpersonal between non-native people and native people and we need people sort of addressing the human side of that problem be willing to sort of get to know one another and heal the trauma and sort of take responsibility for what happened and acknowledge it um, and I think that's that might be difficult for some people 
So there are a set of challenges, but there are also potential solutions, or at least lessons we can learn. What are the lessons that Canada could learn from other regions and countries in terms of moving forward with this ambitious project of preserving and reviving Indigenous languages across the country? I think one of the places to intervene is the way that we we construct the conversation discursively, right? Like, I think Jason Lewis and his his prof the professors and the students that work with him have always consistently said indigenous futures, indigenous futures, because that still strikes people as a strange conceptual. But really, I think that language revitalization, and I'll give again Hawaiian examples that absolutely apply to Maori uh, in Aotearoa, is that our languages are our key to resource management and mitigation against climate change harm, so that we are using ancestral knowledge to put back into health from the mountain to the ocean, um, growing native forests to bring rain, to um, grow massive amounts of agricultural crops to sustain populations, and the way that we've built these lo'i and awire irrigation systems from mountain to sea then feed estuaries and large complex fish ponds that my ancestors kept for over, you know, nearly a thousand years, like 900 years. So, you know, these are technologies that Hawaii is currently teaching the world. And the language is key to keeping that knowledge fixed and, and a source of life, not just for one group of people, but potentially for many people facing these kinds of climate change challenges. And I think this is also true in Canada, right? The people who live on the land, and we understand in Hawaii the fragility of boats not showing up to give us supplies. And yet, we are a people who weathered nearly a thousand years here, 900, seven, eight to 900 years, here without boats. Our populations thrived, right? They weren't as large, but, you know, we are the stewards of this. We have been the stewards of this place. And so I think that the problems facing all people you know, drought, access to water, clean water. How do we live off the land? How do we, how do we create spaces of vitality and growth? That's good for human beings also, right? That language is key to that process. So that's one of the things that we have to sort of move on from discursively, the way that we think of indigenous knowledge only belonging in indigenous spaces and not being able to be authoritative or leading in these areas where, you know, again, I come from a place in Hawaii where fisheries, marine biology, astronomy, we are leading in all of those areas. We have Hawaiians in all of those areas, right? And so we need to put more people there to collaborate because as we are seeing globally, we're all in this together. Yes, these are very powerful uh, words. And I, I think we circle back to the beginning when you said that there was a close relationship between language, indigenous languages and, and the land and, and nature, and that indigenous languages are not just about indigenous peoples. Is it what the main message is here? I mean, I think Hawaii is the key exemplar of that. If I say Waikiki or Aloha to people, they're like Aloha. You know, they have, a, they have a, a grasp of what that conceptual might mean. So we do have Hawaiian concepts, ho'oponopono, pono, aloha, malama'aina, that may have escaped from Hawaii and are now running around in the world doing, I think, good, right? 
And so that's the kind of ethos or kind of, con that's what I, I'm leading with. I'm imagining a world where we can see Cree or Anishinaabe or Mohawk, and we can feel familiar about that and connect that to the place the same way we might in English or French. Well, thank you very much. Mahalo. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. That was Noelani Arista, the incoming director of the Indigenous Studies program at the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. To learn more about the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, our academic programs and our public event, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash misc. You can follow us on Twitter at MISCCAN, M-I-S-C-C-A-N. And of course, you can subscribe for more episodes of Close Up on Canada. Thank you to our producer, Blair Elliott, and the staff at MISC, and to you for listening. Merci et à la prochaine.